Well, um, thank you guys for coming. Good to see you all on this. As we were saying, and we all unanimously agreed, if we have to have summer, this is the kind of summer we'd like. Actually, I said that, but no one disagreed. <laughs> now, to make this today as meaningful as possible, I'd like to have a couple of things out. Number one, a handout that I just gave you. Make sure you have one. It's a bunch of notes that I did years ago. And uh, quite frankly, I did not have time to retype all of them. or any, So I just made copies of them with all my little scribbling. The other thing I'd like you to do, if you have the original packet for this class, is have page 15 out. Um, it, is, it is really important that you have, um, if you have that, um, otherwise some of the, what's on this sheet uh, the, the sheets, actually, that I just distributed may not be as meaningful. So what I would like to do is, if, if the, in your notes on page 14 is the remaining material for the rest of the book of Exodus, and you'll see that chapters 25 through 31 are the instruction God gave to Moses concerning the tabernacle, all the parts of the tabernacle, and then Chapters 35 through 40 are the actual construction of the tabernacle. So what I want to do is I want to cover those two units, 25 through 30 and then 35 through 40, today using this handout. Because the, 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 greatest, the greatest cure for insomnia is to read all these details. It's not that it isn't rich and it is really wonderful, but for us, we're not going to do that. It's, it would be too time-consuming, and it would be hard. So what I've done is I've prepared this handout, um, which, again, is something I did many, many years ago, and I have some notes written on it and so on. So um, what I'd like to do, if you have all that stuff out in front of you, and, of course, then the Bible, we'll be looking at some of that. And then I think next week, I don't think we'll be able to get into that. Next week, we'll deal with chapters 32, 33, and 34 which is where Moses, while Moses is at the top of Mount Sinai, the things that are going on down at the base of the mountain with the construction of the golden calf and all that stuff. We'll deal with that next week. But I want to do a couple of things here by way of introduction as we start talking about the tabernacle. Now, one of the things that if you take all of the parts of the Bible, in other words, all... 66 books of the Bible, and you put them together, you have this progression. You have the tabernacle, which is what we're discussing right now. The tabernacle was basically a tent that traveled with Israel all around the wilderness, and then once they get into the promised land under Joshua, it still moves around. It's in Shechem for a while, it's in Bethel for a while, it's in Shiloh for a while. So it's moving around. But the tabernacle is then eventually replaced by the temple. And the temple was built by King Solomon about 930 B.C. Now, what the temple goes through lots of phases. Uh, the temp, original temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and so on, but that's not important. But what the New Testament does is then helps us to understand that all of the aspects of the tabernacle and temple are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So the word to use in connecting 
the tabernacle and the temple is the word fulfilled. This is all fulfilled in Jesus. And so what I've done in the sheet that I gave you this morning uh, when we got started is I want to show you how these things are all connected. Because, like I said, the tabernacle is basically a tent that they you know, put together and then dismantle and move on, and they put together and dismantle. It just, that's just what it is. It's replaced by, it's basically identical. The temple is just permanent. The temple is a permanent structure that replaces the, the, the uh, t- uh, tabernacle, which again, for the third or fourth time, is basically a tent. But uh, what is really amazing is just how the Bible just all ties together in a unity that is beyond just something naturally happening, is how this is fulfilled in Jesus. And a lot, another word you can use, is a lot of the things in the tabernacle and temple and the rituals and sacrifices, another word that's used is prefigure what Jesus will do. Prefigure what Jesus will do in his death, burial, and resurrection. So this is just, I mean, it's kind of sloppy and messy, but um, I just want you to see, and that's what I want to do here today, I want you to see that these are all connected. Tabernacle is like a tent which is replaced by the permanent building of the temple, which both actually are fulfilled in Jesus because what they do prefigures what Jesus is going to do at Calvary's cross and then the resurrection. So. Jim, uh, it's notable, at least to me and my wife, that the Bible is just so detailed throughout, and you demonstrated that again this morning, that if anybody had any question about whether it's accurate or the truth, you know, if they read the Bible yeah. and they really just study that, there'd be no question. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, in my view, you, 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 you're right. You have nailed it. You've hit the head. You hit the nail with your head. That's one of my teachers used to say. In the sense that it does really demonstrate how unified all this is. And it just, it just doesn't happen. It is very much a part of the plan that God has. And so what I'd like to do is if you have, again, if, if you're on page 15 of the note packet, it just, I had, what I did there is I provided for you a couple of things. I provided for you a kind of a drawing of what the tabernacle and the court looked like. And then here are the measurements. And then this one is just like if it's a 100,000 foot view and you're looking down upon it, okay? If you are really interested in, um, on page 18, it, this was sent to Fred in color. So if you printed it in color, you'd have it in color which is another drawing of what the tabernacle will look like with all the colors of the different implements and parts of the tabernacle, including the colors of the coverings that were over the the tabernacle itself. And each part, each part is symbolic of something. And that symbolism is both prefiguring and then fulfilled in Christ. So if you look at, uh, if you just want to look at the drawing that's on page 15, you see, again, what I've said now about five times, the tabernacle is basically a tent with elaborate coverings over it in a court, and the measurements of the court are 150 feet by 75 feet. I'm, I'm, all I'm doing is just reading from this. And the tabernacle itself is 45 feet by 15 feet, 
And then there are parts, which we're going to look at in just a minute, parts in the tent, in the tabernacle itself, which is really where the very important ceremonies went on, the holy place, 30 by 15, and then the holy of holies, 15 by 15 feet, which is the most important part of the tabernacle, which we will talk about what that what that involved and, and so on. So if you if you look with me now at the material I gave you, what we're going to do is we're going to start from the inside out. Now the tabernacle itself was symbolic. It symbolized for Israel. Once Moses builds it, Moses is, that's what chapters 25 through 31 tell us. God gives Moses the instructions. This is what I want you to do. I want you to build this and this and this and this. Here are the dimensions. This is what I want it looks like and so on. That's what we're not going to read that. If you're really interested, you can read it, even using the stuff that I've given you in this handout. But it symbolized something. It symbolized for them the presence of God among them. Now, that verb is symbolized. It isn't the presence of God, I mean, in the sense that, because God's not an idol that you can confine to a piece of wood, but it symbolized the presence of God with them. And it was a place where God would meet with the leaders of these people. Moses would meet with God. You will read this over and over and over again in Numbers, in Deuteronomy, and to some extent Leviticus. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting and talked with God. What's that mean, tent of meeting? It's a tabernacle. But it's also where the Levitical priests would go. And it also was kind of, um, I don't know how to say this, except it was the vital center of the theocracy. Now that should not be a new word to you. We've used that a number of times. But it was the center of the theocracy that God was establishing. And you will see once, well, you won't see because we don't cover that in the study of Exodus. But if you would go on and study the book of Joshua, the book of Joshua tells us that as they went into the promised land, across the Jordan River, what goes ahead of them? The tabernacle, carried by the Levitical priests. And then it, wherever they camp, when they go across the Jordan, they immediately camp at a place called Gilgal, immediately. The tabernacle was set up in the center, and then all the tribes, they would all pitch their tents in strategic locations around the tabernacle. And then, as they would go into battle, the tabernacle would not always, but often go ahead of them. And then once they're established, they would, they would set up the tabernacle in the semi-permanent place called Shiloh, and then it would sometimes travel to Shechem, sometimes travel to Bethel, and so on. And then I'm fast-forwarding way ahead, but then when King David um, establishes the monarchy and unites it around Jerusalem, he will put on what today we would call Temple Mount, he will make that the place where the tabernacle is. But it's his son Solomon then who will dismantle the tabernacle and build the permanent temple. Exactly the same structure, except it's permanent. And... And all of that is, all that's going on here points to what Christ will do, which is what I want to do. Um, when did the tent become a permanent structure? Was that with David? Yeah, with King David, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, in terms of being in a permanent place yeah. Yeah, in okay. Jerusalem, that's right. And then it would be replaced by the permanent building, which is made of stone okay. and so on, which is the temple. 
But again, the temple, the, the, the tabernacle is like a tent and it will be replaced with the same function, the same structure, the same measurements basically by the, taber- uh, by the temple, which is a permanent building, although it will be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, it's you know, permanent. Did I catch that right? Did, uh, did they take this tabernacle slash tent with them everywhere? They everywhere they went, absolutely. As they are traveling around in the wilderness wanderings, every, that's exactly what they do. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, is an, it is an elaborate procedure how they are to take it apart and then put it back together. And the Levitical priests are the ones in charge of all this. It's their, and their responsibility to carry, uh, as you'll see in a minute, most importantly, carry the Ark of the Covenant, which we'll talk about in just a minute. Did I see, uh, Rob? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, forgive my tardiness, but I think I've got it here that the tabernacle then implies a temporary structure. No question. No question. No question. It was um, it, it was understood by them, understood by Moses, that it was temporary. But that temporary nature goes for five hundred years. Right. <laughs> till, but, till. but is that because they were nomadic the people? They needed uh, um, a structure they could take with them. Well, yes, in terms of their movement from Sinai into the promised land. And then once the conquest is over on Joshua, which takes seven years, then they settle down. They get their permanent land grants, they settle down, they make Shiloh kind of the religious center. And then it doesn't move anymore. So to a degree, it is because of the nomadic wanderings, because just until they get the promised land and conquer it and so on. But uh, then it it is no longer to be moving around, to be one place. And they go there to worship go there to do the sacrifices. I'm thinking of the Mormon Tabernacle, which is where you go if you visit the Mormon Temple. Mm-hmm. In Salt Lake City, yeah. Inside, but you can visit the Tabernacle, and I, that's been there for a number of years. Mm-hmm. There's also one in Lancaster County. Uh, I'm from Lancaster. In Lancaster County, right outside of Lancaster, the city along Route 30, the Mennonite uh, Foundation and Museum there has built a tabernacle to scale, exactly like we're looking at. Kind of neat to visit. There are several of those all over the country in different places where you can see. All right, let's take a look now. Using the sheet that I gave you, what... um, what I want you to have here in, in your view now is, I know I keep showing you, but it's all on one page. This is like a 100,000-foot view. That's not, but you know, you're looking down upon. This is the inside of the tabernacle now, okay? Here's the tent and all that. Now, this is the inside of it. And I want you to notice, we're going to follow this in terms of the, 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 the sheet that I gave you. The Holy of Holies. Then we're going to talk about the holy place, and then we're going to talk about the ark. Okay? And so just kind of how you're going to, eyes are just going to have to go from one to another, one to another. But since I can't use PowerPoint slides, I can't put this elaborate presentation I have together, you have to use paper. And if you don't like it, (laughs) tough. I don't know what else to say. So we're looking now, as we start, the most important part of the tabernacle, the holiest of all, the holy of holies. I won't read the, the directions there. You can see it. It's, it's only content where the Ark of the Covenant and its covenant cover the mercy seat. And if you want to just have a little idea of what it might have looked like, look again at the bottom diagram here. This is like you're looking down upon the Ark of the Covenant. 
Okay, that was the Ark of the Covenant, and it was covered by the, the mercy seat. There are some other in the, the handouts I gave you on the next page, page 16, is another uh, way to look at that. Okay, now what went on there? Why was that so important? Well, inside the Ark of the Covenant, which was basically a box, over the next uh, decades, three things will be placed in that. The Ten Commandments, a pot of manna, and then the, the uh, rod or the, the, the staff that Aaron had, which budded. It's that staff, the one that led them through the wilderness and so on. They would symbolize God's protection and care for them. But for now, that is not as important. What is really important is this is where the blood of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement was sprinkled. This is, this, basically, this is basically when this occurred. I give you a bunch of references there that you can look up both in terms of, of the, the practice and then how it symbolizes what Christ will do. On Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, I'm the high priest. Now, I know that takes an enormous imagination, but pretend I'm the high priest, okay? And I'm dressed in my priestly garments. I have the ephod on my chest. And what I do is we have had the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. And the blood of the Lamb has now been shed. I take a hyssop. Hyssop is a brush-like plant. I dip it in that blood, and I go into the Holy of Holies. This isn't the holy place. This isn't the outside. This is the, this is the most important place. And staring me as I enter that four-inch thick curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies, I enter that. There's the mercy seat. And I sprinkle the blood on that mercy seat. And what does that mean? It's called the Day of Atonement. One day a year, the high priest did it. It was only one day. They follow the lunar calendar. Every month had 30 days. So one day out of, out of the year, the high priest would do that. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And remember, atonement means cover. God is covering the sins of the nation for another year. And so it was an incredibly important day in the worship and the symbolism of what God was doing. It is in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, on the mercy seat, where the high priest once a year takes the the blood of the lamb is dipped it with a hyssop and sprinkles it on the mercy seat. Why is it called the mercy seat? Because God is showing mercy to his people. He owes them nothing. He offers them everything. And so as, as we put there in that material, that last sentence under Roman numeral one, all of this pictures the son of man, the son of God who became the son of man and died on a cross, shed his blood for us, which once for all atoned for sin. It's that once for all is the key phrase in the book of Hebrews. So you can see that what happens in the Holy of Holies, at the mercy seat, which is on top of the Ark of the Covenant, is incredibly symbolic of what Jesus will do 1,400 years later. This was begun in 1400 B.C., roughly. Jesus will do it once for all. But until then, until the Messiah would come and sacrifice himself according to Isaiah 53 as a prophecy, they would have to do this once a year through the high priest. And there are key individuals in the Old Testament and then key individuals as you open the New Testament who are high priests. And one of them was the father of John the Baptist. 
It was his turn as one of the high priests to go into the Holy of Holies, which he did. And you read about that in the early account. Andrew, you're... Just a question. When the high priest would go into the Holy Holies, were they witness to the, I think it's called the Shekinah glory yeah. in there? Um, uh, that's a great question. Uh, Andrew has raised a question that requires explanation. So... Um, the term that he used, Shekinah, is a Hebrew word. Shekinah means glory. It's the glory of God was manifested in the Holy of Holies. Not that sentence, the, whole, the glory of God was manifested in the Holy of Holies. That, do you understand what I mean by that? In other words, it was visibly manifest. You don't see God, it's just his glory. And it would say in the Old Testament a number of places that hovering over, you know what hover means? Hovering over the Holy of Holies, was a manifestation of glory. Most everyone understands that to be a bright, very piercing, penetrating light. That, so the answer is, and it's not only the high priest would see that, everyone would be able to see the manifestation of God's holiness. Which is why it's really important when you study the book of Ezekiel that Shekinah glory departs from the temple and leaves because they've gone into idolatry. And God sends them into exile. And that's one of the reasons why, again, when Jesus shows up, it speaks of the glory of God manifested in Jesus. Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17 is our fullest account of that. The glory of Jesus is demonstrated. How how would they see the glory if it's behind a curtain? No, it's hovering over hovering over the Holy One. In other words, above it. You would see it. Everybody would see that bright light. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, no, no. I mean, over the top of it. Over the curtain, over the tent itself. They would see the manifestation of the glory. That's correct. That's correct, yeah. It was for a time you would you would see that. It was a it was a demonstration of the manifestation of the of the glory uh, of the glory of God. And um, well, if you look at chapter 40, verse 35 of this book, you see an illustration of that. So Fred, the only one turned into it, but if you find it, just 4035, chapter 40, verse 35, I'm pretty sure that's where it is. Um, it says that Moses was not able to enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. There you go. Okay. Glory of the Lord fills it and manifests it. And from there on out, that Shekinah will be manifested. Will be shown, will, it's, hard, we, it's hard because you don't have a detailed description of it in the Bible. But, I mean, here's what the Shekinah looked like. It had this dimensions. It was this large. You know, that's, we don't have that. But it almost always is understood as a bright, piercing light that you could see. It would be manifesting the presence of the glory of God. And that's why when you, uh, then you read Isaiah 6, you read Matthew 17, where the, the glory of God is described, or Revelation chapter 1, where the glory of God is described in Christ. They're just using metaphors and similes to describe it. It's like this, it's like this, it's like this. Because to try to describe it in human terms is extremely difficult. 
Right. Uh, that word cloud, uh, we think of cloud as being dark, but this was bright. Just the opposite. That's, a, that's the understanding of that. Um, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And then um, when the high priest uh, sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat, was that for past, the past year's sin, or the future year's sin going forward? That's a good question. It is usually understood as the the, the sins of this past year are now covered again so that you begin fresh, so to speak. <laughs> you begin the new year uh, with with sins now taken care of. At, it, in Hebrew, it's Yom Kippur, which is the of all days in the religious calendar of Israel. And still today, that's true in 2017. It's the most important day on the calendar. And you might remember this. Those of you, I'm the oldest one in this room, so I'm maybe the only one who remembers it. But in 1973, when Egypt and Syria launched an attack of Israel, what day did they launch it on? Yom Kippur. The day of the year when Israel would most likely have its guard down and they did. They got caught off guard by that. Now, eventually that would turn into be a victory for them. But So they were very, uh, they meaning Egypt and Syria, were very strategic in attacking Israel on that day. Okay, so that, if you read in the book of Hebrews, um, and you know, there are just so many references you could go to, but in the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews helps us to understand that Jesus both prefigures and fulfills the atoning work for sin of God and of the Holy of Holies. So it's just, it's, it's, this is the most important part of the tabernacle. Then number two is the holy place, which you can look at on the bottom diagram on page 15. Again, looking at it if you're looking above it. This is where the priests served God and the people daily. And there were three items in the holy place. <clears throat> okay, three, for the golden altar of incense, the table of showbread, and the golden candlestick or lampstand. These were what separated the holy of holies that had a four-inch wide curtain between it and the holy place. In the holy place, this is where the priest would do, do their work you would have the table of showbread. Now, if you look at the, if you look at the, um, the map here, you would walk in. So the priest would walk in every day. They did every day. This is the high priest. These are the priests. Every day they'd walk in. To their right is the table of showbread. To their left is, and they show it as a menorah, which is correctly is the lampstand. And then right against the thick veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was the altar of incense. And each one of those is really symbolic. And I want you to think with me. Think with me about this. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And the altar of incense, incense always symbolized prayers. As the altar of incense, as the incense, that's the prayers going up before God. Uh, Ask of me in my name, and I will take it to the Father. Ask of me. So you can see Jesus, the symbolism of Jesus is quite powerful in the holy place. The daily work of the priest. They would go in and they would take the the menorah or the lampstand and they would replace, because it it would only burn for about 24 hours, they would replace the oil in the lampstand. 
and then light it again, it would burn for another 24 hours. They would place the showbread, which is an indication, it's just bread, unleavened bread, but to indicate how God makes provision for daily bread. And the altar of incense symbolizes the prayer and communication and intimacy with God. Jesus fulfills all those, doesn't he? He's the bread of life, the light of the world, and ask of him, the son, who's our intermediary. He's our high priest. He takes our petitions to the Father. I mean, it's just, I don't know about you, we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class, but this is, you really see the unity of what God's doing. He's showing to Israel, this is how you walk with me. This is how you walk with me. And then I just have an item on the Ark of the Covenant. And, um, you know, the Ark contained three things there at the bottom. Uh, the Ten Commandments, God's holiness, God's moral law, the pot of manna, God provided for them during the wilderness wandering, and Aaron's rod that busted. He's, but he's the source of all life. Hebrews chapter 9 shows how all this is fulfilled in Christ. So those sheets just really symbolize the most important parts of the tabernacle. And then on the next page, number 4, number 5, and number 6, are the elements in the holy place, which we've just reviewed. Table showbread, the golden candlestick, and the altar of incense. And again, I already went through some of this, but the, you know, the purpose, what it looked like, how, how they made it, what its dimensions were for each part, and how Jesus represents prefiguring and then fulfilling each one of these. He's the bread of life, the light of the world, and he's our intercessor. You see, that's why when a Jewish person comes to faith in Christ, they will use the word unfulfilled Jew. Because I understand how Christ did all this, fulfilled all this. But tragically, so many um, are still not accepting him at this point. So, well, we did well. So we have two parts of the tabernacle covered. You ready for the quiz? Joel. Oh, just a comment on the other, I mean, another fulfillment um, of Jesus is Matthew 27 51, when it says that after he was yielded up his spirit, that the veil mm. the temple was torn yeah. to the top of the bottom. So, then, I mean, kind of opening up that fulfill. We don't need it anymore. Yeah. yeah. Now, instead of the high priest being the access and connection to God, now you and I have 24 7 access to God. Because Jesus is our high priest. It's kind of exciting, isn't it? I mean, it just really is. You mentioned a four-inch curtain. Yeah. Now you mean, <clears throat> are you talking about, how are you describing that? Four-inch thick curtain That's between the really holy place and the holy. Really heavy. Mm -hmm. It's very heavy, yeah. Very heavy. That was... Yes, and, and Joel just read the passage from Matthew's gospel where it was cut in two, rent in two, you know. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the symbolism of that um, would, I, I, mean, I just can't imagine how it didn't hit people. The symbolism of that in April of A.D. 33, which is when Jesus died, would have been unmistakable for what was going on, for anybody that's paying attention. Everything that had been prophesied in the Old Testament was fulfilled that day. And there's now access to God. You no longer, this... It isn't that this system is bad or evil. It's just it's fulfilled. Its purpose is now done. Now we have access to the Lord. So, I mean, it's just, it really shows the integrity and interconnectedness and continuity between the Testaments. 
the Old and the New Testament, which is one of the reasons that studying this is so exciting. I, I never ever put that together. That's good. That's why you come to this class. That's good. Now it's really, it really makes the scriptures come come alive. It, it it really does. Okay. Now we have the two major parts: the holy of holies and the holy place, and what's inside each part. Now let's go outside the holy place and the holy of holies and the court, and the dimensions of it are there in that one chart at the top. And this, this, again, at the bottom, you can look at it from the top or you can look at it along the side. The court has two primary pieces to it, two primary items, the bronze laver and the altar of burnt offering. Okay, and what I did there is I just uh, start with the, the, the brazen altar. Um, between the door of the tabernacle, the gate of the court, Give you the description's purpose for slaying the offerings and to hold the fire for the sacrifice. Now, I want you to notice you have to this you can really see it. There, if you look at it, it's kind of rectangle in its in its shape, but at each point of the rectangle, there's like a little horn. Do you see that? That's why this is this is particularly well done. It really is. This the horn is where the animals were slain. Their blood was then, if it was like, for example, for the Yom Kippur offering or for some of the burnt offerings, the blood would need to be captured and sprinkled. And then the animal, according to the instruction, depending on the offering, the animal would be then consumed on the altar. Consumed, burned, you know what I mean? On the altar. Now I want you to notice there's a little, there's a, there's a little incline here, a small incline that the priest would walk up Again, just for purposes, and, and the scriptures were very clear on how this, even the little incline, is to be built. As, as Woody said at the beginning with his comment, that God is incredibly specific here in what exactly he wanted them to do, the exact details and precision of what it's supposed to look like. So then if you look at um, the type, the whole altar pictures Christ in the cross, bearing our sins in his body. He was both the altar and the offering, which is what Jesus, when he dies on the cross for our sins, he fulfills what was going on daily, monthly, and yearly on the burnt offering altar. And that's why the book of Hebrews says, Jesus did this once for all. Aren't you glad you and I were born this side of the cross? That we don't have to do this? Amen. We don't have to go through this to have a relationship with God. Because Jesus did it on. There's just a number of references there, from, particularly from the book of Hebrews, that you can, you can look at to consult how Christ fulfills all this. Now, almost everyone is familiar with the altar, the burnt for burnt offerings, which we just over. Less familiar is the laver, the brass or bronze laver, which is this big thing. And by the way, this thing is enormous. You look, if you look at the dimensions, this thing is this is very very large. And it, um, if you look, its purpose was for the cleansing of the priest's hands and feet, and it also is sometimes it depends on on what they were doing for the washing and cleansing of some of the animals. So what does that mean? This labor pictures Christ who provides cleansing. And um, these things were highly polished, almost like a mirror, very wide and, and very significant. And Jesus cleanses us. We don't have to go through this cleansing. 
Jesus cleanses us once for all again. So these are the parts of the, the tabernacle proper. The court, you have the, 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 the altar, and then you have the labor, where the washing, and then you have the inner, then you have a tent, then you have the inner uh, part of the holy place, where the table of showbread on the right, the menorah or the, uh, the, the uh, candlestick on the left, and straight ahead was the altar of incense, which was right up against the, the curtain that separated to the holy place. And in the holy place, holy of holies, is where the, the Ark of the Covenant one was with the mercy seat over top of it. And that's it. I mean, it isn't terribly elaborate. I mean, you, you don't have a great amount of furniture. You just have these basic pieces. But each one, this is really an important sentence, each one has something to do with redemption. I'm assuming that uh, bronze labor, like for a lavatory, I mean, it's like a basin. Yeah, that's right, like a big basin. That's a good, yep, that's a good, that's a good analogy. It's like a big basin. Mm-hmm. Now, the sacrifices were brought by all the people, or the priest selected a sacrifice. Uh, it depended on on it depends on which one you're talking about, but for the most part, the burnt offerings, the peace offerings, the votive offerings were all brought by individual people. That the priests would then do that for you, but you brought them. Now the Yom Kippur Day of Atonement that would be done by the high priest for the benefit of the whole nation. But let's so let's just suppose, um, just as an example. Um, you know, God had, in, in your life, you had been praying about something and God had answered it in an incredible way. You, you could, what's it called a thank offering. You could go to Jerusalem or if it was in the tabernacle or Shiloh or whatever and offer an animal as a thank offering to God. Thank you, Lord, for what you did for me. In answering this prayer and providing, and so you would take your animal to, uh, to the inner court then the priest uh, would take it from you and would offer the animal uh, on the altar, on that one of those side corner, and uh, I mean, kill the animal. There's no other way to say it. And then if it was a blood sacrifice, a little bit of blood would be shed, then be burned on the offer. And in the peace offering, I'm just giving you illustrations, another thing, you offer the peace offering, you would then share some of the, 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 the meat of the animal and eat a meal. Because you're now at peace with God. You're enjoying fellowship with him, which in the ancient Near Eastern world, and even to an extent in our culture today, one of the greatest examples of fellowship is to enjoy a meal with someone. And that's so, it's, the symbolism of this is really, really remarkable. The size of it startles me. I've never looked at that. It's relatively small. It is. 15 by 4. Yeah, I mean, it, you, that's right. You're not talking about a massive structure. It's relatively small. That's correct. And then even when it's built permanently in the permanent structure on Temple Mount, where, I mean, the, the basic innards what we're, is in the temple, but what surrounds the temple is ornate and incredibly lavish. That's what Solomon does. And, and really, in, in, in obedience God, God tells him how he wants it built. But the temple in Jerusalem, which is the permanent structure, is, is in terms of the the structure itself was remarkably lavish. Okay, I think I saw another hand. Yeah, time. Yes, Jim. Uh, Please. The bronze laver, labor, is that yeah. what Uriah replaced for King Ahaz? 
when he brought in Ah, uh, yes. Yes, it is. It is. Okay. That's right. Yes, it is. I'm getting a little ahead. No, but you're, well, you're right. And that's going to be one of the, one of the absurd things this rule will do as they get more and more apostate, particularly in the, in, in, the, in the latter periods right before they go into exile, is they start bringing things from other religions and the Baals and other idols, and they bring them on to and be a part of the worship. So they're trying to worship Yahweh and also worship Baal in the same place. Well, as you know, if you've ever read the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, or some of the minor prophets, God isn't real happy about that. And said, I, you, what's the Ten Commandments? The first commandment is, don't have any other gods before me. Don't mix worship with me with these foreign false gods. I'm not going to let you do that. And so, yeah, I mean, it's just the absurdity of what Israel tries to do as they get further into their history and get closer to the exile. Is that called syncretism? It is called syncretism. Mixing of, of two. All right. The, what I did here, I gave you, you know, you may find this uh, too much, but I gave you a little bit of material under Roman numeral number nine, I think it is, um, on the boards, which are always kind of fascinating to me, on the, on the boards and the rings and how, how God is very clear and very specific. But then even the covering. The covering is Roman numeral number 10. And if you look on the last page of the handout, which is a color drawing of what the tabernacle, it was very colorful. It would have been rather lovely to look at, actually. But you please notice there's an inner covering, a second covering, a third covering, and then the outside covering. The inner covering made of blue, purple, and scarlet linen. The second covering, white goat's hair. The third covering, ram skins dyed red. And the outer covering was badger's skin which gave the appearance of brown hiding the grave, which was for protection from the weather and so on. But you have these four layers, and in the, the color drawing on the last page of your, of your packet, which I gave you when we started, uh, there's an elaborate nature to that. It's both beautiful and elaborate. And then the outside, uh, which is the court, it goes at the bottom of that page and to the top of the next page, you, you just see, the, the, again, the measuring. It's about 150 feet by 75 feet. And the pillars that supported the basic structure and then the gate. The gate is always to the east. And when the temple is built on what we call Temple Mount, Mount Moriah, or whatever it was called, uh, you want to call it at that time, uh, the most important gate was the east gate. Because the east gate faces the Mount of Olives. And today, 2017, the East Gate is closed. When one of the caliphs was ruling Jerusalem after they conquered Jerusalem, uh, he said, this Jewish legend of Messiah coming back and coming through the East Gate, I'm not going to let that happen. So he closed the gate up and put a Muslim cemetery in front of it. And so when I, uh, we, I take people to Israel, we always point out we're standing on Temple Mount. I point that out. And then we walk down what, what they call Palm Sunday Road. You walk down to Gethsemane. And I don't know if you know anything about the geography. Mount of Olives is high. Valley of Kid, where uh, Gethsemane is is at the Kidron Valley. You're looking up at the East Gate. And then you really have a fantastic picture of that closed gate. This is my view of what's going to happen according to Zechariah 14 and Revelation 19. Jesus Christ is going to come back 
tells us in the Mount of Olives, he's going to walk down the Kindred Valley, he's going to point his finger at the East Gate, it's going to explode. He's going to walk through it. That's not in the Bible, it is not there, but it tells us he's going to enter the East Gate. So. Oh, he'll walk right over. What I'd love to do is get, we all get on a plane and we head to Jerusalem and I show you all this, but that won't happen. So, um, that's kind of uh, an overview of the tabernacle. And what's in 25 through 31 is, that, is God giving him these very specific instructions. This is what I want you to do. And then the remaining chapters of the book, 35 through 40, is Moses. He has two gifted artisans. They're both named, and they build all the stuff. And then they're ready to go. They're ready to head they thought into the promised land, but the disobedience and defiance of God, you know, uh, they got to wait 40 years before that happened. All right. I didn't think we'd get all this done today, so that's fantastic. Well, you probably think we've all internalized it. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I told Jim that, you know, we're still learning a lot, but I probably only had about 15 or 30%, and he said, well, he said, for as much as you're getting, he said, that's quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that's great. That's great. Now, in, in, uh, we're gonna, I want to go to chapter 32 now, but are there any questions about the tabernacle? I, the handout I gave you, I apologize, it's not quite as neat as most things I hand out, but I just decided I wasn't going to retype all this. And I've got some of my notes on it, so I hope that. Just a nice little resource for you to really understand. And just one more time, tabernacles are replaced by the temple. They're basically the same. They don't look the same, but one's permanent structure. But this all, the Bible stresses again, they prefigure and Jesus then fulfills uh, what they are doing. And in a once for all sacrifice, the redemptive plan of God is completed. I mean, that it really, it meaning the tabernacle and the temple fulfilled in Jesus gives unity to the scriptures. It really gives unity to the Bible. Uh, I don't, and I think Woody or somebody said that at the beginning of class. When you really study this, you really do see that. This really brings unity, unifies and ties together all the portions of Scripture uh, in, I think, an amazing way that can't just be a coincidence. I don't know how you are with God. I don't think there's anything such thing as a coincidence. So, what do you think the reaction of the high priest was when that curtain got torn in? It would have been uh, oh, it would have been absolutely staggering to them, and that's why we do know many believed, not all tragically, but many believed, and that was the, and that's Paul talks about that in First Corinthians fifteen. The resurrection, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus changed so many people's lives because they came to see and understand that what Jesus had been saying is fulfilled. And when he was raised from the dead, I mean, his brother, James and Jude, didn't believe on Jesus, that he was who he said he was until after he was resurrected. They were among the doubters. They didn't believe. James says, I didn't believe he was, I didn't believe my brother was the Messiah until the resurrection. And that's why um, our... That's Thomas, yeah, that was Thomas. But I don't know that he actually did that. I, he, I he, he said he would do it, but Jesus just said, here I am. And yeah. it just, my it Lord. sounds as if Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. 
That's why Jesus also says, though, blessed are those more who believe and do not see. And that is you and that is I. We don't see the scars of Jesus like Thomas did, or the other disciples for that matter. But we believed. The resurrection is the most attested event coming out of the ancient. You know what I mean by attested? One of the most verified, attested events coming out of the ancient world. It really is. There's more evidence for the resurrection than there is that Julius Caesar lived. There's more evidence for that. But yet, how many people doubt the resurrection but believe in Julius Caesar? It's just, it's just that blind blindness to the things of God. So, all right. You are now um, successful students in your understanding of the tabernacle. So if I give you a quiz next week, kind of fill in the blank quiz, you'll, you'll get it right. You have to know all the measurements. <laughs> when did they kind of lose track where the ark It's kind of lost, isn't it? Well, unless you believe Indiana Jones found it. But no, it, um, it dis- with King Josiah, Josiah was a reformed king, Basically, and it's really pretty near the the conquest of Nebuch- by Nebuchadnezzar. But with King Josiah is the last mentioning of of the Ark of the Covenant. Um, there is a segment. I don't think it's it's probably accurate, but there's a segment among Orthodox Jews who believe it's buried under Temple Mount. And see, the Muslims control Temple Mount. The, the, the Jews, when they conquered, when Israel conquered uh, Temple Mount in 1967, the June War there, 1967, what they did was a very magnanimous act on their part. They said, we, we are not going to shut off access for all other religions to Temple Mount. We'll allow Muslim, Christians, and Jews to worship. And we gave control of Temple Mount to a Muslim foundation. It's called the WAC, which is run by the government of Jordan. And they prohibit Israel from doing any excavations under Temple Mount. Uh, there are some people who believe that's where it is. I don't think that's conjecture. Um, almost everyone believes that it was destroyed um, uh, at the time of after King Josiah. It was destroyed and uh, was 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 never found and never used. Uh, I don't think uh, Indiana Jones' story is right. Uh, a group of Ethiopian Jews believe, and there's a there's a building down there near Addis Ababa, where they say the ark is. They won't let anybody in it. They won't let anybody investigate it. They just say, you got to believe us. That's where it is, which is not a convincing way to build your case. You know, it's there, but we're not going to let anybody see it. So there's just absolutely no evidence. And I think if God wanted the ark to be preserved, he would have ensured it. Because remember, to, to, to be blunt, the ark is utterly irrelevant. For you, because of Jesus, it's an utterly irrelevant. It has absolutely no meaning other than historical artifact. In terms of our faith, it has, it has absolutely no meaning. So it's, it's kind of like Noah's Ark, which, you know, that may be on Mount Ararat or some people in that frozen glacier up there. But I don't burn a lot of brain cells. I'm not going to contribute any significant amount of money to it because it doesn't matter in a way. Anyway, it's like Jesus said, you know, in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, you remember that in Luke's gospel? You know, no matter what I do, no matter what I send, 
people still won't believe. Because remember, Lazarus, or the rich man says, just send Lazarus back to tell my brothers. And what's, Jesus, what's, what's Abraham say? In that event, look, they have Moses and the prophets. It's not a question of the evidence. It's a question of the heart. The evidence is there. You have to choose whether you're going to believe or not. It's, it's not a matter of that. It's the way it is with the resurrection. The, the issue isn't the evidence. The evidence is there. It's a matter of the heart. And people are going to respond to it or they're going to reject it. And that's why we're not responsible for people's decisions once we share Christ with them. It's up to them. It's, that's right. It's not and it's John 16, it is the Holy Spirit who convicts people of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's the Holy Spirit's job. You and I just to be faithful. Um, what about David's city? Some people believe that that's the real location of Jerusalem. Oh, I don't. I don't have any doubt about that. I've been there a number of times. I don't have any doubt that uh, it's on the. It's on the. It's called Zion. It's on that hill there. I, they found David's palace. They found. I don't have any. If that's what you're saying, I don't have any doubt that they found that. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. It's really exciting. There's a lot going on there. Every time I go there, there's always something new they've discovered in those digs. On the, it's on the. I mean, you you have to know the geography of that. But it's the city of David is a very small area south of Temple Mount. And Solomon built his great palace between the city of David and Temple Mount. That's where he and they found that too. But where the excavations now that are showing. Uh, where David's palace was, where the city of David was. And when you stand there, I've stood there many times, you look across the little village of Soan, that's where Bathsheba was. You have no, you have no, in any way, difficulty understanding how David looked across and saw her bathing on the roof. And you're just looking at a perfect shot, exactly. Now called the village of Soan. But it's, uh, yeah, it really, when you're there, oh, getting the urge. I said 2014 was going to be my last trip, but I keep thinking i got to go back one more time. So, But we'll see. Uh, so, John. Um, the Ark is irrelevant to Christians, but it's still relevant to the Orthodox Jews. Well, it? yes, in the sense that um, it would be historically, but I mean, in terms of, John, in terms of the redemptive nature of it, from from God's perspective, but the contents of the ark they they were the uh, two tablets. Yes, and you don't the, know whatever happened to those. That's well, that's that's it. I mean, that would all have been that would all have been destroyed, okay. uh, presumably, by Nebuchadnezzar's armies. Well, the zipping of Bibles and the body language indicates we're done for today. So <laughs> next week, I want to start with Genesis. Sorry with Exodus 32, which is the famous golden calf debacle and all that. And there's a series of chapters there, and so it'll take us a couple of uh, sessions to go through those. But, you know, you do realize we're near the end of our study of Exodus, so now we've got to think of something else to study, which means I need to think of something else to study. I think we're going to go to the New Testament. What I'd really like to do is First and Second Peter. Well, why don't we? I'm going to introduce it with Jude and then First and Second Peter. So if that's all right with you, that's what I'm going to do. You think Jude first and then Take first. Jude. Jude is one chapter, but it's fantastic. And then we'll do First and Second Peter. But, I mean, we're not there yet, but that's no, kind of no, what I'd like to do. Is that all right? 
Even if it isn't all right, that's what we're going to do. So anyway, all right, let me pray here. Lord, thank you that there is unity to the Word of God. There's unity and continuity between the Old and the New Testament. But what links it together is the cross. It's where Jesus, what was prefigured in the tabernacle and temple, Holy of Holies, uh, the mercy seat, the uh, the table of showbread, the the, uh, the, the menorah, the, the incense, all of that. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the intercessor. I am the high priest. Oh, goodness, all of that is fulfilled. And we are thankful for that. Lord, thank you for each one of us. I think I'm accurate in saying this, that we were born this side of the cross. That we were able to take advantage of the finished work of Christ and apply it to our lives by faith. And now all of these majestic things we study about the tabernacle, we see how they truly were fulfilled in Christ. Uh, And we are just so thankful that there's unity. And when there's unity of the Bible like that, it gives us a greater reason to trust it. Because it is the Word of God. It's declaring truth to us. And it builds our confidence and trust in you. Because you are the God of the Bible. You are the God who is accomplishing your purposes uh, throughout the history and throughout the world and in each one of our lives individually. Because we are important to you, each one of us. We are part of your plan. We are part of what you're going to do. And we're going to be part of the population of heaven. And that's an exciting truth for each one of us. All because of what Christ did for us. So we praise him. We exalt his name. We pray as we go into the rest of our day this Wednesday that you'll bless us, you'll use us, and may we represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.